Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. You're listening to Trending here on Relevant Radio. It's great to be with you. We're going to be joined in just a little bit by Dr. John Finley. We're going to unpack a perspective on the 21st century crisis of identity that incorporates multiple disciplines from biology, plastic reconstruction, surgery, and endocrinology, psychology, theology, and philosophy. We're living in a time where this crisis of who am I is becoming more and more predominant. We see a rise in young people identifying as transgender, confused about sexuality, uh, feeling isolated, loneliness, anxiety. So we'll dive into that with Dr. John Finley in just a moment here on Trending. We'll also unpack the Hill Holy Queen prayer. I said we were going to do it yesterday. We will today. It's a favorite prayer of mine. It's one that we most commonly pray at the end of the rosary. And there's much to be said. You know, yesterday here on Trending, we were joined by Father Robert Spitzer. And we were discussing uh, growing in our prayer and how one of the challenges sometimes when we find that we're stuck in our journey is that are we really allowing the words uh, to actually have depth and meaning for us or the words of the repetitive prayers that we pray, especially as Catholics, kind of just, you know, flowing over the top of us and us not really actually meaning them. So by breaking down this prayer and really diving to some of the roots of it, I hope that we will have the opportunity to really mean those words that we are saying when we pray. So again, joining me now is Dr. John Finley. We're diving into the identity crisis that we face today uh, with multiple perspectives from science and faith to philosophy. Uh, He recently was a part of compiling and editing a massive project that was truly interdisciplinary and holistic in addressing the identity crisis using biology, uh, working with a plastic reconstructive surgery, Dr. Lapper, who we've had here on Trending, incorporating the dimension of endocrinology, psychology, theology, and philosophy. Uh, Dr. John Finley, again, compiled and helped to edit and was a contributor to this book. And I'm really excited to unpack the identity crisis we're working uh, against today in our culture to help people find truth and joy and happiness. So welcome to Trending, Dr. Finley. Thank you so much, Timory. It's great to be here. 
I was reading your book, Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation, and it was interesting as I was walking through, you made a comment in there that I think uh, sticks to the very kind of crisis that we're experiencing, and that is you mentioned the incoherence that we're experiencing and how this has led to isolation and intellectual slavery. How do you see uh, isolation has played a major part in the identity crisis that we're experiencing today? Yeah, well, you know, I think it has to do with this notion of one's own self-perception and self-identity coming out of what a person fundamentally desires or feels to be the case, that that's the connection with the isolation. Because um, we're at a point in our society, and you can see this in different ways, but especially with something like the transgender movement, where what people have to rest on first and foremost in terms of the way they see themselves and their relation to the world has to do with um, self-identity where what that means is what I want fundamentally, how I see myself and what I want. And um, if, if you take that stance in disconnection from the natural world, from the things that we're born into, you know, in terms of human communities, and from the kind of fundamental structural relationships that all humans, in fact, find themselves in, such as um, family connection, then you end up with what could seem like absurd notions regarding one's own selfhood and uh, the way in which the way in which one uh, becomes um, increasingly divorced from the reality that that we're a part of. So, you know, I I thought that it was important to address this notion of incoherence in a twofold way. First, when it comes to the immediate crisis, which has to do with sexuality, that there's a kind of incoherence to speaking of oneself, say, as a man, if one is biologically a female. But on the other hand, that there's an incoherence at the level of reason, you know, right. that we, we learn how to speak and how to think in connection with other people. We get that from our parents and our caregivers. And um, to the extent that we view ourselves as disconnected from fundamental natural and human relationships, um, we lose our rational abilities increasingly. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. You speak at one point in your book and uh, really to this kind of priority that we naturally have as human beings with regard to our connection to others and ourselves. You talk about the biological priority that's obvious, you know, male or female, our biology points to this. Uh, but you talk about the personal dimension and then the historical priority of really that impact of our historical relationships and how they have impacted us. Mothers, fathers, other, you know, father figures, mother figures, um, role models and influencers. And I was even thinking about how we tend to, especially, you know, in, with the millennial generation, maybe blame aspects of where we're at in life or respect aspects of people we have based on these particular relationships and how these roles function. And at the end of the day, each and every single one of them really comes down to the maleness and the femaleness of that relationship and how that person lived it out, whether it be father figure of father wounds or, you know, motherhood wounds, all of those things that really play such a pivotal role that have led to, I think, this isolation because we're uncomfortable with ourselves. Yeah, that's really true. You know, I think it's in that light, it's interesting to look back to Genesis and to see that sin 
becomes a reality for the human race. Sin enters the world precisely in a kind of um, primordial divorce, you might say, between man and woman. That these two things are 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 presented by Genesis as really connected: the the man woman relationship and the presence of of evil, of chosen evil in our world. So it shouldn't surprise us that that today we're finding that same, we're finding a confirmation of the connection between those two things, but unfortunately in a negative way. That, um, mm-hmm. as you say, the most fundamental human realities and relationships have to do with the male-female distinction. And when those start to corrupt, as, as they have in society, uh, then the very meaning of humanness, our status as the rational animal, as the one who, who has care for creation, all of that starts to slide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep thinking of Genesis chapter three, when we hear, you know, that that fall and how that male and female dimension will be broken. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, we know, you know, a lot of this is talking about um, our lady and Satan in that battle, but it's also talking to the maleness and femaleness and the battle that will take place between that understanding. And on one respect, it's an uh, like this uh, disregard and detachment of the two complementing one another. But at the same time, it's also this discord within ourselves. You know, we see this in marriage, you know, this discord of, you know, the attempt to, especially women, to usurp that uh, God-given leadership role in the 21st century, or for men to step away from that leadership, to step away from the protector and being the provider. It's an, it's a problem of complementarity, but it's an inner term oil that, as you're saying, goes back to the very beginning of our fallen human nature that we're seeing kind of uh, being lived out in a very different way right now in the 21st century because I think we've become so detached from the blueprint of the human person and what God had intended because fewer and fewer people are identifying as some form of Christian. So we have fewer people saying, okay, well, what about what God intended? What about what God intended? Instead, they're saying, let me just create my own reality. You do you and I'll define my own prospects as well. Yeah, so you can you can see kind of a twofold, you know, causality going into what's happening in the 21st century. And there are other elements as well, but two that I would point out are, you know, on the one hand, we have a kind of technological means and comfort and ability that we've never in the history of the human race, such that um, we can we can think mistakenly that we're capable of all sorts of things that we might not, not in fact be capable of among them perhaps changing our the very fabric of our sexual identity at the biological level but also just the aspect of comfort that we're not um we, if, if we choose we're able to kind of step back from a lot of fundamental daily responsibilities and um worry about whether all of our desires and whims are being met um but as well, you know, that the technological and economic kind of comfort that we have, that alone wouldn't have been able to put us where we're at, uh, because those things are not bad things in and of themselves. But along with that, we've had the fact that, you know, various uh, ideologies that speak falsehood have been allowed to grow and to fester. And if you think about this country in particular, over decades in higher education, and through um, some of the voices in in the cultural sphere, and and that's where you know pe- people who know better have 
have failed to, to speak out adequately and and respond to it. And so, of course, we're, we're, we all we all fail and we, we try to get up and do better. And, and in some way, this this book hopefully is, is attempting some of that. And again, in your book, you talk about isolation and intellectual slavery. And what you just mentioned with these two causalities of this crisis of gender today, the technological means and then the comfort of our technology, it's led to laziness, whether it's the laziness to be able to appeal to our even base instincts and needs like, hey, I need to eat. Hey, I need to go to the bathroom. I mean, just look at video games alone. I worked at a college university. I know kids who literally were not sanitary, not eating and not using the restroom because they were trying to beat a game and uh, you know their whole body was oriented toward the chemical reaction of that game Um, and I know that's an extreme example but that's how much so I think technology has intervened in our comfort that's an extreme but for us who hasn't failed to do something because of the comfort of sitting and utilizing technology uh, but also having struggled, I think, as a culture with the comfort of lacking uh, intellectual integrity. And when you talk about how important it is that we ponder, you know, ourselves, our lives. I know in your book, you talk about the famous statement of Plato, uh, where he talks about how an unexamined life isn't worth living. And you comment on that saying that we're deliberately refraining from reflecting on ourselves. And that in a certain sense, it makes us not human, because as human beings, we're we're intellectual beings, and yet we're going against that tide, and that's part of why we're being turned into this um, tool or this gadget to be manipulated, fixed, neutered at any moment with things such as um, so-called sexual reproductive technologies and gender-affirming care through hormone replacement therapy and surgeries, which are talked about in your book, Sexual Identity. Yeah, and I think it is really, really important to look back, as you were saying a moment ago, at the nature of the fundamental human relationships and how, you know, on the one hand, we have the ideology which takes advantage um, of failures to speak the truth and takes advantage of falsehood. Uh, on the other hand, we have, you know, actual people who um, suffer in various ways, who are under misconceptions, who experience themselves in a, in a difficult manner as as being of the opposite sex, who identify as trans, um, these actual persons for whom, in many cases, there is a real uh, wound that's created by some sort of deficiency in these fundamental human relationships. And um, so when you have cultural phenomenon like no-fault divorce as, as a, uh, an accepted and encouraged reality, when you have the proliferation of pornography and the um, widespread use of contraception, not to mention abortion, all of these things um, have the effect of striking at relationships, human relationships, which are predicated on the male-female reality. So in that light, it shouldn't be a surprise that, that the very realities themselves, man and woman, start to, start to become questionable, start to be regarded as um, superfluous or optional or, or to be manipulated. Right, depending on on how one's feeling. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's interesting. I was thinking even how literature has changed in a certain respect on this whole idea of relativism, as we're discussing. Um, I love fantasy fiction, and you know, sometimes to find clean fantasy fiction that doesn't have creepy occult content or just 
sexual content anymore. Um, I've read a lot of teen fantasy fiction or attempted and have found I've been very unimpressed really over the last 10, 15 years. And it's interesting though, because it used to be in a lot of the fantasy fiction, you would see a lot of stories that had kind of this idealistic elite royal type of story, you know, knights, princesses, kings, whatever, you know, you have in these fantasy stories. But much of what we see in fantasy fiction today is very apocalyptic. It's very self-made. And even looking at things such as is uh, Hunger Games, where there's a lot of dysmorphia and, you know, the elitists have, you know, adapted their body to have whiskers in their face and really unique facial features. And you can't tell, you know, it's almost this androgynous uh, look to the human person. It's just fascinating when you incorporate literature and how that kind of escape from reality, which is part of what people use to, you know, stimulate the imagination and rest through literature, has become so so odd in and of itself. Uh, and I think it's a part, that literature is a part of what we're seeing in the culture too, of it's not what we used to seek after to dream about and get away from. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, I, any, any, any given one of these stories, you know, whether it be fiction or film, um, might, might have something really interesting to say about the present situation and about human failures and possibilities. But when you start to see, as you note, that, that this is sort of the order of the day and that these things become the, the majority of what's being artistically created, that's when you see, okay, there's something at the cultural level that's, um, that's really disconcerting. And, um, you know, the, the kind of darkness that you talk about, I mean, it's very sad as a reflection on our culture. And it points all the more to the importance of, say, in the realm of fantasy fiction or literature, uh, the importance of a real affirmation of the good and that um, you don't have to, uh, an affirmation of the good presenting what's, what's truly fulfilling can be done in an artistically compelling way. Um, it's not to say it's easy. I wouldn't know how to do it, but, but there are people who, who, who do and, and who can, and, and those things should really be pursued here on Trending with Timory. He's the contributor and editor of Sexual Identity, the Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation that addresses the identity crisis we're experiencing today. We're going to come back talking about the importance, but also the balance of sense, uh, of science within the culture of identity crisis. I'll be right back here on Trending. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Dr. John Finley is with me today. He's a contributor and editor of a recent book, Sexual Identity, the Harmony of Philosophy and Science and Revelation. It's really an interdisciplinary approach to the 21st century identity crisis. You need to pick up this book. We were posting links on social media. Just follow me at Timmerie, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, where you can catch that link to pick it up. It helps you to understand perspectives from, for example, uh, plastic reconstructive surgery and endocrinology, from psychology, theology, philosophy, and biology, because this is a topic where the church is right. 
There is such a thing as male and female. Uh, biology proves this. Neuroscience proves this. Even plastic reconstructive surgery points to the reality of this and the completeness of the human person. And so it's a topic that we shouldn't be afraid of. We just need to be formed in to be able to have those conversations. And as you know, it's an important topic to me why we discuss it so regularly here on Trending. Uh, so I'm very happy to be talking to that contributor and editor to the book, Dr. John Finley, and many of the authors in the book are actually contributors and guests here on Trending, such as Dr. Patrick Lapper, who's a plastic reconstructive surgeon. So I'll include some links to episodes where he's explained, you know, the impact of things such as so-called gender affirmation surgery or what you might know as a so-called sex change. You can't change your sex. You can manipulate matter, but you can't change your sex. That's a fact. So what I want to talk about now is in the book, Dr. Finley, you guys talk about the importance of the use of science to make sense even of many of the anomalies that are and do indeed occur at times in our culture. Um, and you even give the example of adrenal hyperplasia or when the genitalia of a person maybe isn't fully developed and yet we can refer to the chromosomes uh, of the person to know whether or not that person is often male or female for the XY or XX chromosomes. And you talk about how historically uh, this person, you know, depending on how they presented themselves, could be looked at as an outcast um, or a freak, as you say in the book. But through modern technologies and sciences, we can actually come up with a medical condition that helps to explain the deficiency in development, the deformity, abnormality, and understand that something's missing. And I find it so fascinating because on one side, we can turn to science and say, aha, okay, we've got it. We can work through this. And then on the other side, we're using science today as a means to be the authority 100% in the culture rather than to assist the human person in pursuing truth and answers uh, in human flourishment. Instead, we're using it to manipulate the human person today. Oh, I, uh, it, there's a sense in which I feel bad for science and for for uh, good scientists, you know, because science rational authority. That I mean, there's two reasons. Again, one is just because of the extraordinary advances and developments in the scientific field. Really wonderful. But at the same time, you've also had lack of a more governing, you know, for lack of a better word, philosophical vision and culture and reality. Mm -hmm. um, and that's allowed the scientific worldview. Dr. Finley's having a little bit of an issue with his connection. We're going to catch him right back in here and make sure we can make out what he's saying. But I really do see much of what he's saying in his book and what he's discussing right now of this problem where we become slaves to science rather than, again, allowing science to be an authority, but not just the only authority, to have this interdisciplinary approach of, you know, scientific theories, a hypothesis, proving and working through your hypothesis, uh, not being... I think um, 
damaged uh, by that hypothesis in and of itself as well. I feel like many um, times we have a hypothesis and then we just stick with the hypothesis and don't reach any of our conclusions. And it's riveting to me where we are as a society that science has to explain everything rather than allowing faith and science, the reasonability to work together and also understanding if we believe that there is a God, that we understand there's also more to life, to the world, to knowledge than what we ourselves in our finite capacities can understand. Because if we believe there's a God, we believe in something that is infinite, right? As something that is eternal. And we understand that massive chasm of a difference between God and the human person, just as any reasonable person. And although I think that many people might say this is unreasonable for me to say right now, any reasonable person sees a large chasm in the differences between a human person and a dog. Or, okay, fine, you think your dog's a person, whatever. Um, we would see a difference at least between a human person and a plant, right? And this is where we talk about the different types of soul. And this is where philosophy plays a part of the conversation where it's not only science that we're using to understand the human person, human nature, the world around us, uh, the challenges and difficulties in society, but we turn to natural law that is God-given, that understanding where God created, and then seeing the theological revelation of who we are as human beings created as God is clearly destined and clearly explained as male or female, not male and female, not both at once, not interchangeable, but male or female. And as we were discussing earlier with Dr. Finley here on Trending, uh, we were talking about how kind of this crisis of gender does appeal back to the very beginning. And so we have Dr. Finley back with us so that we can hear them well. And again, I would like to hear your thoughts on this problem of where we use science as the only authority rather than it assisting us in pursuing truth and answers. Yes, I'm sorry for the communication issue, but that's right. Um, you know, it, it, it is the case that we have a great challenge as Catholic thinkers now. I'm a philosopher by training. The Catholic philosophers and theologians um, now more than ever need to be able to find ways to partner in um, organic and substantive ways uh, with the sciences because the sciences have become so effective, but they've also become, again, the, the only effective rational voice of authority in our culture, which is not where they're meant to be. Uh, no one can live on science alone. We, we understand that as a, the beneficiaries of the rich Catholic intellectual tradition but you can also see it sort of on the other side, on the side of, of those who would um, promote, for example, a transgender ideology. You know, this ideology in itself does not conform with scientific truth. So that's a kind of negative confirmation of the fact that, that people cannot live according to science. You're going to adopt some, some more fundamental worldview than what science has to offer. And we see that sort of on, on both sides of this issue. So um, for us, knowing as we do that God is the author of all truth, um, it is incumbent to be able to bring the sciences together uh, with each other, but then also with good philosophical thinking and with theology uh, to be able to form a coherent vision of the human person that takes into account all of these discoveries. It's not an easy task, but it's a crucial one. And in fact, in his 
1999 encyclical Fides at Ratio, Pope John Paul II said that this was an, um, a monumental task required in the third millennium and that it'll take a long time, but that we've got to begin now. And that's a task that all of us need to take responsibly. And I think that's part of the challenge, Dr. Finlay. And I think one that I really do hope your book will intervene in the lives of many people is that many people are afraid to say something because seemingly uh, science is winning on this. Uh, the data we hear in mainstream media uh, makes these false claims that if you actually pause and look at the study, look at how they, the studies were conducted, how they weren't completed, you know, who they were actually asking, uh, if it was just a hypothesis or if there was a conclusion, you see it doesn't add up. It doesn't fit together. Uh, it's kind of like the abortion issue. We saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade because the falsified medical data that was used and the false stories and testimony didn't hold up. And so that's why the pro-abortion movement was so terrified that Roe v. Wade would be overturned uh, this year because we had the votes of people who were willing to believe in truth and say, hey, this doesn't add up. And I think that this is something that we will see with the crisis of gender. I mean, we've barely seen the issue of gender hit the courts yet. I and mean, what's happening with minor is outrageous. We will see in the coming years, uh, I think, a very serious crackdown eventually of what's being allowed to happen in the medical and, ed and educational system, at least with minors. Uh, but again, it comes back to reality. And that reality is being revealed with people such as yourself and others contributing to this book, Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. Dr. Finley, in your book, one of my favorite parts um, in your contribution is the threefold primacy of woman and man in human life. And we talked a little bit about the historical priority, how all of us have been impacted by our historical relationships, mom, dad, and those various uh, father figures, mother figures, and role models, and how they have affected us really based on their maleness and femaleness. But it's interesting in your book because you also talk about a biological priority, which we Uh, when we get to know someone or learn a person's name and try to engage with this person personally or speak of them, we immediately subconsciously, you say, want to know whether that person is male or female. And isn't it fascinating how inherent that is within us? None of us says, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Naturally, there's that curiosity as the first question we're asking or trying to figure out. Yeah, that's right. So that uh, if you if you you know decide that you're not going to care about that, well, then it you have to decide that. Like it takes an actual uh, a determined act of the will to try and persuade yourself that it isn't important, or to try to to tell yourself, oh, I'm not going to be interested. Um, and so then you end up harming your own sort of natural rational abilities, and you end up stunting your own kind of natural desires when it comes to the knowledge of other persons who are the most important creatures in the world around us. And so at many levels, this, this movement has the effect of the human race um, stunting itself, you know, harming itself, but both, you know, in the worst cases at the biological level when it comes to some of these surgeries, but also at the more cultural level uh, when it comes to us as humans trying to pursue truth and communicate it effectively. You know, it's interesting. I have a number of stories, actually, ironically, on this issue that are fascinating to me. I was at the dry cleaner a handful of months ago, and this person 
um, presented themselves as a female. And as I was talking to what I presumed was a woman, I said, thank you, ma'am. And she was just practically belligerent with me. Well, what would make you call me a ma'am? Don't call me that. And I was taken aback because here I am. I'm the customer, right? I'm being very kind and speaking to what I believe is to be a woman. And presenting obviously as a woman. I mean, I think I'm sensitive when I'm not sure. I kind of just don't assume if it's a stranger today. Um, but I was just so taken aback by the offensiveness. Why would you call me that? Just And she, at a certain point, uh, just told me, just don't talk to me. And I said, okay, well, I'm giving you my clothes right now, and I need to tell you about a couple of stains on them. Is that okay with you? Like I literally had to ask permission at this point to speak to her and to continue to um, do service with her. And it was kind of one of those, I think I might have even asked her, like, would you like me to leave? Would you like me to take my things somewhere else? And there was just such a strong animosity from this individual. Um, it was heartbreaking because it, it was startling to me at first. And then, you know, there's kind of this reaction of, okay, I'm just trying to do, you know, a simple thing of taking and dropping my dry cleaning off. And now I've got a toddler who's getting a little grouchy because this person's being aggressive with me at the dry cleaner. Uh, and I was so confused. But then I had to just pause and kind of reevaluate and say, you know what? Something's not right here. Let's try to be as gracious as I can be in this moment um, while also recognizing this person is very, very, very broken to be at the point where they are so aggressive with regard to their identity, but obviously presenting their identity in a way that they don't want someone to communicate it. It, it was fascinating to me, and yet it was disturbing and distraught, a distraught moment for me because I wanted to uh, know, you know, what's the answer? Is this person really a man or a woman? Have I actually maybe offended this person? Uh, it's so odd in this culture that we're at this point where someone would so angrily react that way, either out of brokenness or out of an agenda that they're pushing or is being pushed upon them by maybe even a therapist. Yeah, that is that is an amazing story. But, you know, it shows how the the absurdity of the logic that these positions lead to, because in effect, what what someone like that is saying, again, I, I don't know their own personal story, but but what what's being communicated is you have to be able to read my inmost perceptions and desires and thoughts about myself. And if you're not capable of doing that, um, I don't care about having you around or having a relationship with you, right? It, it, the, that you should find it necessary to talk and to ask questions and to say things is a total inconvenience to me. You should just be able to, what, somehow get inside of my, my psyche and just know everything about me. And that way you wouldn't say anything that could even possibly offend or trigger me, which is impossible. And so... This is, you know, th this is inherently doomed to frustration, this kind of position. Um, but, but unfortunately, people, perhaps people like this person that you encountered, are being cajoled into reacting this way. And you've got a lot of cultural voices that are encouraging and promoting um, this sort of anti-communication amongst human beings. And it's not going to turn out well. 
And isn't that true? An anti-communication among human beings where we can't communicate, we can't cooperate, we can't even find, you know, a common language in this instance. I couldn't find a common language. Like we, It was almost that we could not communicate, that I was going to have to just leave. It was astounding. Uh, Dr. Finlay, I really appreciate your book. I really, really 10 out of 10 recommend Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. You. you have compiled a wonderful grouping of people in multiple fields helping us to be equipped to respond to the crisis that may impact our family maybe a child with an identity crisis maybe a spousing these stories are coming out we need to be able to respond with love compassion and truth whether it's the dry cleaning person that we bump into a member of our family or as we get involved in the real crisis i think politically that we're going to have to participate in uh, to see that people are not uh, victims of an anti-god uh disorientation of who we are as male and female again pick up his book sexual identity the harmony of philosophy science and revelation there's a link in the episode notes for today's show just go to relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast thank you dr finley for joining us today on trending i'll be right back and we're going to unpack the hail holy queen that prayer that we often pray after the rosary listening to Trending with Timley, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I'm really looking forward to tomorrow's conversation here on Trending. We're going to talk about the topic of during Gentleman's Hour, if you're struggling in your career, maybe you're bored, uh, anxious, or maybe you need more for your family and you're trying to figure out what the next steps are. We'll be joined by Jim O'Day, the Executive Director of Integrity Restored. And gentlemen, we're also going to talk about, have you ever considered leaving your marriage? Have you maybe struggled in an affair and yet you have this you know, Catholic view of, hey, I stick it out, I stay married, but I'm kind of resenting my spouse for feeling quote-unquote stuck. We're going to answer one woman's question about this, but dive into the male perspective of wanting to leave and honoring that commitment within marriage. You're listening to Trending with Timory, so stay with me tomorrow for our weekly Gentleman's Hour. Always happy to take your questions, gentlemen, from a Catholic perspective with our guests. Uh, I want to talk today about the Hail Holy Queen prayer. Now, by the way, if you are not subscribed to the podcast, you need to make sure you don't miss an episode of Trending because yesterday... Father Robert Spitzer joined me here on Trending, and it was an excellent conversation, diving into a few important topics, including um, happiness and how we can achieve happiness and stay happy, and the dimension of the soul in the human person as a part of that, and prayer. But also, you may hear about the dark night of the soul and the challenge uh, that you can have as you're progressing spiritually, and you hit a certain point where there's just a numbness in terms of feeling with regard to maybe receiving those consolations in prayer. And so we talked about identifying it, but what Father Spitzer really focused on is that no matter where we're at in our prayer life, the importance of meaning our prayers, not allowing the words to just wash over us and pass us, but to really pray those prayers that we pray. And so what I wanted to discuss was the Hail Holy Queen prayer. One of you actually emailed me saying, I love, love, love this prayer. I'd like you to talk about it. And I was so excited because the Hail Holy Queen prayer is a prayer that we commonly pray at the end of 
the rosary. So let's actually pray it together and then I will unpack it with you. Uh, if you know that I pray for you, if you're a regular listener here on Trending, I pray for you daily. Uh, but I want to pray if you'll join me now at anyone you know who might be uh, struggling to conceive a baby, struggling with fertility, or seeking to find a spouse, we offer those up who are listening now as well as our loved ones. We'll pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To you do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To you do we send up our sighs, mourning, and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious Advocate, your eyes of mercy toward us. And after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we might become worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Such a beautiful and powerful prayer. Most commonly prayed the Hail Holy Queen at the end of the Rosary. Uh, there are a lot of questions that can arise when praying this prayer. Uh, one, I think, place to start is why, yet again, we should always ask ourselves this. Why do we pray for Our Lady's intercession? You know, just as we would pray for or ask a friend to pray for us to God, uh, why not ask the people closest to Jesus Christ in heaven, uh, such as the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints who we know through Revelation are with him. Uh, and so the Hail Holy Queen is one of those opportunities to do so. Saint Antonio put it this way with regard to praying to Our Lady for her intercession. He said, whoever asks and expects to obtain graces without the intercession of Mary endeavors to fly without wings. I, I thought this comment so uh, intriguing because it's something that separates us in some ways from um, other Christians, non-Catholic Christians, is this concept of Our Lady, this uh, this respect and love and honor that we show her, and our recourse to her in prayer. It's fascinating. One of my dearest friends is not Catholic, and yet something she increasingly grows to respect and love is the Catholic love and honor for Mary. And I've seen it grow even more so as she's become a mother as well. This softening of her heart to see uh, the intercessory role Our Lady played in her son's life. And I think this is something many women uh, turn to understand as well. At least I've understood more uh, being a mom myself. So I'm really unpacking this prayer. The first opening line is, Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. Now, one line always stands out to me every single time I pray this prayer. Uh, we talked about her as queen, and we talked about her as mother of mercy, life, sweetness, and hope. And the one area that always sticks out to me is why would we call Our Lady our life? Why would we call her, you know, I understand our sweetness, and even our our hope in a certain respect. She was the symbol of hope uh, in the respect that she said yes, allowing the, everything, the cause of our hope to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God didn't have to use her, but he chose to. Well, why do we call her our life? Well, we call Our Lady our life in this Hail Holy Queen prayer because it was through Mary that God brought about redemption the redemption of humanity. So much as we call her our hope, she, she participated in fulfilling that hope, we recognize Mary's intervention in our individual salvation. And then by speaking of her sweetness and hope, we also speak to her maternal love, that a good mother 
gives us this tenderness, this mercy, this love, this hope that even in the darkest hour, things can and will be okay. And all of this is done through Our Lady glorifying her son that through the grace of God, she says yes. And she lives out that motherly vocation. So this Hail Holy Queen prayer, ironically named after the Queen of Heaven and Earth, as we refer to Our Lady, really at the heart of it has to do with Mary's motherhood and her saying yes to being a mother. Which on just a side note, is such a difficult thing in our current culture. Whether you're already a mother and the distractions and opportunities that may come your way that other people try to convince you to participate in, to uh, be distracted from your primary vocation as a mother. I've seen it. It's so easy. I, the, truly, we have to recognize this is the tug of the devil trying to get us to do something other than what is the best in the primary vocation we have by the very fact that we have participated in the creation of a new human life, by the very marital vows we make as women. And so this prayer, I think, is a prayer for all of us, but especially for us as women to turn and see that idol that that we have. And again, we shouldn't be idolizing her, um, but that role model specifically, again, I used the wrong word there. I'm calling her an idol in a certain respect, um, that we look to her as that example for us. So then the next line in the Hail Holy Queen prayer, we say, to thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. Why? I think it's pretty simple. We understand Mary as a new Eve who perfects what Eve failed to do. Um, but we also are recognizing the fall, the fall and the brokenness that has occurred in our femaleness and in our maleness uh, from the original sin of Adam and Eve. And we also recognize when we say poor banished children of Eve that we've been banished from the Garden of Eden. What's the significance of this? Being banished from the Garden of Eden, we went from as Adam and Eve's original relationship and state in the Garden turned from one of walking in the Garden with God talking to him face to face as we read in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What's often referred to in what we understand as the original state of the human person prior to the fall. That there was an original state of unity, union with God, union with with the other person in Adam and Eve and their maleness and femaleness. That there was justice, what was known as original justice. That we understood our relationship, to our vertical relationship with God correctly, and therefore we understand our horizontal relationships with other people, whether it be spouse, neighbor, animals, creation, the earth, that there's this proper balance and understanding that is part what leads to that unity. And this is why we were original, originally naked in the garden. There wasn't this idea of I can use you, you can use me. The clarity of the person was so pure. And so, in, as odd as it is for us to understand in our fallen human state, the necessity for clothes was not present because the purity of the relationship of man to woman, woman to man, God to person, person to other person, non-related, or person to nature, it was balanced, it was understood. And the natural spousal meaning of the body, the sexual complementarity, was understood as a gift. That on a material level, it was part of the human person, that sexual complementarity. But that material reality pointed into a greater, even greater reality of that spousal meaning of the body indicating 
indicating what we know as often the teaching of theology of the body, that I am made to be a gift to the world, a gift to my spouse, a gift to my children, and that we balance this properly within the proper order and responsibility of our relationships and community that we have. In other words, when we pray this part of the prayer in the Hail Holy Queen, to thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve, we're referring to this blueprint that was originally there for the human person, and that we've been banished and removed from that proper identity and clarity and relationship with God. We then pray in the next line to Our Lady for her intercession, we pray, to thee do we send up our sighs, mourning, weeping in this valley of tears. Have you ever asked the question, I hope you have when you pray this prayer, what is the valley of tears? We get the whole part, we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping. Uh, life can be difficult, right? But what does this valley of tears have to do with? Well, valley of tears, first in a certain respect, helps us understand this pilgrimage language. That in this valley of tears, we are pilgrims in a far off land, no matter how much you do or don't love your home, how much you are comfortable in your relationships, your marriages, how comfortable you are in your work environment, or in a challenging state you may be in with joblessness, sickness, loneliness, whatever it might be. We understand we are pilgrims. There is this uh, sense that we will always have that we don't completely belong here. We will never fully be fulfilled until we are in our final resting place, that we have this longing for God. And so that language of valley of tears should be part of that reminder of that. It's a transition of leaving behind earthly concerns as well for union with God. Now, we could actually go further into the theology of this and the historicity of the Valley of Tears. The Valley of Tears also refers to a specific place, the Valley of Baca, which means Valley of Tears. So it's known as an actual place that's talked about in uh, sacred scripture. Actually, it's known as a place that many of our patriarchs traveled through in their journeys as a part of salvation history, including Abraham, Moses, Job, and even David. In Psalm 23, we actually read about uh, this pilgrim journey that this valley of tears should remind us of. I walk through the valley of the shadows of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, in Psalm 84, Psalm 84 is known as a pilgrim song that's referred to with regard to the valley of Baca. Uh, and it has to do with a longing for God's presence. And so when we talk about this valley of tears, geographically we have a reference point, but also we have this meaning of understanding we are pilgrims. And that is why we experience the sighs, the mourning, and the weeping in our day-to-day. The next line in this prayer, the Hail Holy Queen that we pray after the rosary, reads, Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. Again, turning to that maternal position of Our Lady as a merciful and empathetic mother. And after this, our exile, we pray, Show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O living, O sweet Virgin Mary. Again, we're reminded of the fall and banishment from the garden and the union with Christ that we are orienting ourselves towards through her intercession, through her yes and her prayers. And we pray, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. In other words, we pray that we rely on the intercession of people, saints, Our Lady. But we also acknowledge that we need to participate in that conformity to Christ that we're praying for. But again, we need to participate in. 
that we receive the grace of God, but that we cooperate with His grace. So that's a Hail Holy Queen prayer, a beautiful prayer to pray after your rosary. I hope you pray your daily rosary, and I hope you'll pray it with us here now with the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky on Relevant Radio. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Gentlemen, are you facing fear or boredom at work or do you need more for your family? What are you going to do about it? Well, join me for our weekly Gentleman's Hour with Jim O'Day as we discuss solutions. Also, have you ever wanted to leave your marriage? We'll dive to the depths of what is going on and what to do about it if that's your experience. So join me for our weekly Gentleman's Hour at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.